This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Simplicity isn't always so simple with crypto, and sometimes the most obvious and concrete use cases are the ones that are the most overlooked. But you can't accuse Figure, a company on the cutting edge of concrete operational and dare I say even cash flow generating blockchain applications, of making the same mistake. Now, Figure is a company active across a range of financial settings, from bank lending to equity and even mortgages, and the company's success and vision are the product of the work of its co-founder and CEO, Mike Cagney, who came to the space after already founding SoFi, the marketplace lender for student loan refinancings, and he's a guest today on the show. With his expertise spanning everything from macroeconomics to payments, housing, securitizations, and more, we couldn't think of anyone better to walk us through just what one can do with blockchain technology today and what we may be doing with it tomorrow. And now for my next number, I'd like to return to the to the to the classic. Oh, oh. Times, times, times. Mike, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. All right, maybe you can just sort of walk us through Figure because it seems to be a kind of ever-evolving, really ambitious company. And maybe uh, for some of the folks in the audience, it's just good to uh, set the scene. Sure. So we we consider Figure a blockchain holding company. And what I mean by that is back in 2018, when we launched Figure, the whole motivation behind what we were doing is that we feel blockchain is going to be the most transformational force for financial services. And that belief is underpinned by two characteristics of blockchain, the ability for blockchain to displace trust with truth. So what I mean by that is creating a native digital asset that's only lived on the blockchain, where I can look to that asset and know for certainty what the composition, the ownership, the history of the asset is. So I'm not relying on the owner's attestation as to what this asset is. And that asset, it could be a loan, it could be company stock, it could be you know US dollars. Whatever it is that's on the blockchain, the, the point is I can look at that and know for certain it is what's, what I'm seeing. And then the blockchain allows for two parties to face off directly and transact with one another without incurring counterparty risk. So what I mean by that is if I were to sell you a loan, I'd have a loan in my wallet. You would have dollars or stablecoin in your wallet. We would face off directly and the loan goes to you and the stablecoin goes to me and we've settled a transaction real time without any counterparty or settlement risk. And when you intersect these two things, you can create marketplaces where you don't have concern about your counterparty. And if you think about financial services, all financial services is, or predominantly is, is intermediated marketplaces. So think about how we trade stock. DTC sits in the middle. We trade on exchanges. We have introducing and clearing brokers. How do we transact with a merchant? Visa and MasterCard sit in the middle, and you have the issuing bank and issuing processor on one side, merchant bank, merchant acquirer on the other side. 
think about loans, they're not even generally homogenous enough to have a marketplace. And the marketplaces we do have are over the counter, relatively illiquid, and, and certainly not transparent. So blockchain has the ability to transform all of these verticals in a significant way. So we're talking about trillions of dollars of market capitalization that will both be reallocated to the blockchain, but also go to the broader ecosystem, in particular benefiting businesses and consumers that transact in that ecosystem. Yeah, you know, that was fantastic uh, from the law professor here, A+. And I, I really, really appreciate it, I think, in, in that answer was that you go directly to the concrete nature of what a marketplace is, and then you kind of look at the technology to think about what it could look like given the technical features of a blockchain. But maybe we can just sort of unload and unpack parts of that uh, story that you're presenting to us by really thinking about figure as, as you mentioned, a kind of a holding company. When you think about, again, what it's done and, and, and the strategy behind it, you've kind of started off with a, a question of securitization and how do you tokenize certain kinds of assets. And now you're moving into other kinds of areas and, and, and even into, um, you're talking about loans you know, when it goes to, to, to mortgages and the like. Can you just provide us with an overview of the arc of the development of figure as a blockchain holding company and how that relates to this um, basic thesis of yours about what blockchain technology means for markets? Sure. So we, we had three fundamental challenges bringing blockchain to the markets when we started figure. And the first was a technology challenge. And the technology challenge was really underpinned by the fact that if we look at Bitcoin or we look at Ethereum, those are fascinating proof of work networks, but they don't really have an application in financial services. They, they're relatively slow. They can be very expensive, but most importantly, they're, they're not reliable. So in financial services, when I send you money, I expect the money to be sent. When I transact and I buy a stock, I expect the stock to be owned. You don't have that certainty within those proof of work frameworks. So the, the blockchain ecosystem has built a, a second generation of validation networks called proof of stake. And proof of stake effectively has, um, you know, generally 100 different validators who independently write records to the blockchain. And proof of stake is very fast, it's very cheap, and it's very predictable. But it has some fundamental architecture design issues. And, and the most prominent is it functions as a golden data set. So what I mean by that is if I put a loan on the blockchain, that loan goes out to 100 validators to write to the chain. But the entire loan is going to them, the customer uh, confidential information, the deed, all these things I don't want in public domain. And so we ended up building a blockchain called Provenance. And Provenance is public. It's open source. It's decentralized. So figure doesn't control it. We don't own it. Um, but we built it as a means to an end in terms of adoption. And what Provenance does, it's very unique, is when I put an asset on Provenance, what's actually going on the blockchain is a hash of the data that I have. So think of it as a, almost a Turing process. I've got a loan that's five gigs of data. And what goes on the blockchain is a 256 character hash that uniquely maps to that data. And the point is that when I transact with you six months from now, I'm going to give you that loan data. You're going to produce that hash and you're going to see, does that hash foot with what's on the blockchain? And so the blockchain is acting as a validation agent, but it's it's also obviously a, a, a registry and a transaction history. And so with this, we thought we had a, a great and, and knew that we had a great foundation to, to provide for financial services. So we went to a bunch of banks and we said, look, we'd like you to do a securitization on the blockchain because we believe that between loan origination, the audit and QC expenses, 
warehouse pledging, the ease and efficiency of getting the asset to the warehouse provider, and then securitization, the actual construct of the deal and, and the underlying liquidity from a, a servicing standpoint, that you could save about 90 basis points from start to end. And every bank we talked to was extremely excited, you know, loved the idea and said they'd like to be the 10th bank to do this. And so there was no one that wanted to move first. And, and so it became very clear to us that, that we had to be the first mover. And so we created a series of operating businesses within figures. So we have figure lending, figure payments, figure markets, where what we're doing on first order is we're getting the economic advantage of being first mover on blockchain. There's some real benefits, both on a revenue and cost basis that we get from that. But we're also providing a roadmap for the broader industry to lean in and participate in blockchain. And, and that's really the, the motivation. And so in 2018, we were the first to originate loans on the blockchain and, and uh, first to warehouse them. We did the first securitization in 2020 and actually saved 117 basis points from origination through deal execution. We've done over $12 billion of lending transactions on the blockchain, and that's actually starting to accelerate rapidly through something we call DART, which we can talk about later. Um, but it, it brought into the third challenge that we had. So we had the technology challenge, we had the early adopter challenge, and then we had the issue of being able to represent a marketplace on the blockchain and being able to represent U.S. dollars or fiat currency on the blockchain. And the, the challenge with both of those, in particular on the fiat currency side, historically in blockchain, dollars have been represented through USDC and USDT, that's Circle and Tether. And the issue with Circle and Tether is those are just general obligations back to Circle and Tether. So we didn't feel that banks would transact in that stable point. And, and we believe that banks play a critical role within the blockchain ecosystem. So in the fourth quarter of last year, we, we did a transaction that was seminal on two fronts. So one of our holding company businesses is called Figure Equity Solutions. And Figure Equity Solutions is effectively a cap table management platform, allows a company to run its cap table on the blockchain. But the, the cap table and the stock in the company are digital certificates on the chain. So there is no paper certificate sitting in a law office. It's a true negotiable digital security. And what we did in the fourth quarter of last year is we stood up a limit order book on a decentralized exchange. So what that means is, is just a marketplace that, has, that crosses bids and offers. And we allowed our employees and our investors to go and list their stock up on offer. And had institutional investors come in and bid on that stock. And for seven days, for 24 hours a day, we ran a straight marketplace for figure equity. And it transacted and settled real time. So private company stock transacting and settling instantly versus 24 hours a day versus the NASDAQ where you know limited market hours T plus two. And, and what was seminal about that transaction was, one, it's the first time anyone's run a marketplace for blockchain securities. And we did this through our broker-dealer. We have an alternative trading system exemption that allows us to run a marketplace that effectively self-settles and self-clears. But also, the institutional investors that bid in that marketplace bought stablecoin directly from New York Community Bank. And it's the first time a bank has issued stablecoin on a public chain. And in fact, Provenance is the only public blockchain I know of that U.S. banks have actually transacted on. And this opened up a huge opportunity. So what New York Community Bank did is rather than them saying this is going to be our stable coin, they said we're going to create a stable coin called USDF. And any bank that wants to be part of USDF can be part of this. And, and on the surface, people said, oh, well, this is great. It's going to allow you to compete with Circle and Tether. And, you know, the reality is there's only $100 billion of stablecoin out there. It's a big number, but in the context of banking, it's not that big. 
what it actually allows the banks to do is they've created a payment network that works 24-7, 365, where they can move money to one another with no friction. And that's going to displace ACH. It's going to allow the banks to challenge interchange. It's programmable and 24-7, so it has enhanced capability versus FedNow. And, and it almost, you know, it, it introduces an interesting question about the need for central bank digital currency. The banks can come up with this on their own. Just comparing for the moment on the, the question of adoption to, again, the really the, the varying use cases that you're exploring, both from the loan origination and securitization on the one hand to, to figure equity. When I, when I talk to founders and when you think about specifically blockchain applications to financial, to finance, right, you ultimately run across this question of, of regulation and the regulatory question drives your ability to experiment. You know, so going back to your bank observation of, yeah, we'll be the 10th bank to do it. You know, the, the irony, of course, being that in banking and just sort of pure lending, those regulatory barriers are going to be less than if you're going to move to anything involving securities regulation. Also, you know, well, this creates both uh, an opportunity for first mover advantages, as you had mentioned, but that first mover advantage usually depends on one of two things. Either A, you're able to get enough scale so that you create enough gravitational pull as a, as a market actor, or alternatively, you know, you're, you're able to enjoy some kind of, of, of regulatory mode. And, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, your, your, your reg ATS world. I mean, but when you look at these two areas, you know, banking, on the one hand, slash lending, and then, you know, the the securities world, I mean, how does that fit into the ability to scale and to give, you know, you, I mean, you're dealing with these institutional players, you know, to give them the kind of comfort to deal with figure? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, the starting point is, I, we figure has over 200 licenses. Um, so we have money transmitter licenses, we have lending licenses, servicing licenses, brokerage licenses. Um, I think Figure's probably the most. <laughs> I, th- I think we're probably the most regulated entity in the country at this point. Um, and so the the idea that that blockchain circumvents regulation is is just absolutely not true. We're we're uh, working directly with the regulators across all the different verticals. And yeah, you know, the work that we're doing on the mortgage side, we've, we've got the FHFA. The, the work we're doing on the security side, it's the SEC. Um, obviously, with banking, it's the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC. And and it, it's it, it's important to engage with the regulators because this is new territory for the. It's it's effectively greenfield, and. Um, there's not a lot of legislation around. So, so they're, the regulators are very tentative to, to create the law and they want to effectively enact the law. And there just isn't a ton of legislation around blockchain. And so the, the general premise that, that we've always taken as it relates to, to how to deal with the regulators has been almost everything is, is a gray area. No, nothing's clear in terms of what one can and can't do. And so our, our fundamental guiding post on this is, is it good for the consumer? And if it's good for the consumer, we'll lean in and take the risk to do something, you know, if it's unclear about what we can and can't do. Obviously, you know, considering not putting a, a bank at risk in, in any, any particular capacity or way. Um, but you have to you have to be able to, to take that that leap, because if you don't, it's going to be very hard to execute. But but you, you hit another fundamental point, which is blockchain is, is, you know, think about provenance. It's public, it's decentralized, but it's open source. So I can't have a technology mode anymore, right? There isn't a technology mode. You can stand up a version of provenance and it'll work just like the version that I use. And there's, there's going to be no difference in terms of the technology. It's the ecosystem you build around it that creates the mode. 
And so with provenance, we've got a broker dealer and an alternative trading system exemption. We have banks that, that can issue stable coin. We have billions of dollars of transactions that have gone through it. I think it has the largest locked value of real assets in, in any blockchain that it, that's out there. And, and more importantly, it's got a registry service called Dart. And this is something that we've done over the last year. And Dart effectively allows you to perfect interest control and negotiability of a digital asset on the blockchain. And this is kind of critical infrastructure. And, and a lot of blockchain lenders found this out with the Celsius bankruptcy, where they had lent Celsius money. Uh, they had taken Bitcoin or ETH as collateral against that loan. And when Celsius couldn't pay the loan back, they liquidated the Bitcoin or the ETH and, and said, hey, DeFi worked the, exactly the way it should have. And everyone was high-fiving and saying, you know, DeFi is the best thing ever. Well, they'd, some of these lenders had not perfected control in the collateral. And because Celsius went bankrupt and because they sold that collateral within 90 days of the bankruptcy, it's fraudulent conveyance. And the initial reaction that everyone had was, oh, well, no, they can't go after them. They're decentralized. And I'm like, well, these lenders aren't decentralized. They have an address and staff and someone can walk in with a subpoena. And it's not a decentralized construct. And, and so, you know, they discovered the hard way that, that you actually do need to do things like perfect interest and control in an asset. Um, which you know, obviously, you're, you're familiar with with your law background, and this is this is something that we're applying into the mortgage space right now, where we're 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 effectively taking e notes and using Dart to perfect interest in that e note instead of using MERS, and and this is introducing a much necessary competitive alternative to the registry service that we've had historically. But it's also providing a catalyst to not only drive conversion into e notes, which the GSEs would love to have but also getting mortgages on chain. And that development of mortgages on chain with Dart is going to be able to open up the ability to create real-time liquid marketplaces for mortgage that has huge benefit to, to the broader ecosystem. And in particular to the borrower who's benefiting from that fundamental liquidity. So there, there's, there's infrastructure that's necessary. And, and one of the things that we've done is we've invested in a lot of this infrastructure to bring blockchain into financial services. And that investment really is the moat. I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, when, when you look at what's needed to be built, I think even when I talk to my friends, you know, in different parts of the country and different parts of the world, there's not always an appreciation of the bits and pieces, the the nooks and crannies, really, within the financial and capital markets space that have to be built up in order to support certain kinds of transactions. And so if you can kind of uh, lay that infrastructure, it does seem to provide you with a with a really interesting vantage point. You know, just to sort of double down on 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 this idea of a of this public blockchain of, of provenance, you know, it's highly unusual, as you mentioned, to have and to see a bank doing a deal or even operating on a public blockchain. Can you just sort of conceptually for for me break down what that actually means? I mean, is it how is it that that you're able to put the controls in place and to build that kind of infrastructure with the dynamism of an open source kind of platform with very risk averse financial institutions? Yeah. So what, one of the most fundamental things, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is you, you control your data and how much data sits on the blockchain. And that's one of the big regulatory concerns is they don't want people looking in and effectively seeing a bank ledger and knowing how much cash is going in and out. 
um, you know, you could trigger a bank run with that that situation, for example, and the, the regulators don't want to see that happen. And so the the obfuscation of information and the fact that what goes on the blockchain is is that obfuscation, I think provides a lot of regulatory relief in terms of what we're doing. The other aspect is there, there are things that we can do within provenance. So, for example, we can set up a zone within provenance where the only validators within that zone are banks themselves. And, and certain transactions go specifically into that zone. Those are transactions that happen between banks. And in that construct, the banks know exactly who the validators are, and only the banks can see the blocks that are written. But the data that's on those blocks is relatively obfuscated to begin with. And that that goes a long way. If you if you look at or or listen or read Grunberg's speech that that he did a couple uh, weeks ago, you know he was very specific, and I and I thought it was great. It was the first time an individual had a, had direct accountability to what they were looking for in the context of blockchain, and, and he was very specific in that. You know the concerns around public blockchain is you don't know who the validators are. What if someone's on an OFAC list and you go and you pay a gas fee, and that gas fee goes to that entity? There is no materiality for for an OFAC violation. So the bank broke the law in that construct, right? You don't want to do that. You don't want people having visibility in your underlying data. Like our equity solutions platform, for example, it's great having your cap table on the blockchain, but you don't want people to be able to look in and see how much stock everyone owns, right? So you kind of have to thread the needle in that in terms of getting the benefit of the technology, but being able to obfuscate the data where you have privacy, and we've been able to do that effectively with figure. And that's that's why the banks have gotten comfortable to lean in and, and leverage it the way that they have. When you think about again the evolution of figure and the different kinds of products and services that you're 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 adding one, I mean, has over time your your let's call it the tokenization thesis changed in your mind in terms of what tokenization should look like and how it should be operationalized in order to both serve your customers and and to be profitable? For sure. When when I started off, when I first started looking at blockchain back in, in 16 and 17, um, <laughs> I, I was I was kind of thinking about this the same way that a lot of other people were at the time, which was, oh, blockchain's so cool. Um, I can I can take a Picasso and tokenize it, right? And put it on the blockchain. And I was like, oh, that's such a cool idea. And then as I got into it, I was like, that's actually a horrible idea because it, it sort of is orthogonal to the first fundamental principle of blockchain, which is displacing trust with truth. Like, how do I know that Picasso exists? How do I know you didn't sell it to 50 other people? How do I know you didn't you know, spill coffee on it? And, and so it, it, the, the tokenization concept actually is one that I bristle against a little bit because, you know, people look at blockchain as a panacea and they, they want to tokenize everything. And the reality is any analog asset or even a digital asset that's not native to the blockchain, there's no benefit in, in putting it on a blockchain. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the most fundamental things. The second is, you know, everyone jumped in early on and said, oh, this is going to be great. We can attack title insurance and get rid of title insurance with blockchain. And, you know, I, I had um, some, some heads, heads of the GSEs come out and see me early on to talk to me about this. I'm not going to name specifically who it was, but they said, look, can you solve this problem? Because, you know, every dollar that's paid in for title insurance, we get three cents of claim back, right? It's not really insurance. And I said, well, that's fundamentally why there isn't a blockchain solution here. Because the problem isn't fraudulent conveyance and using blockchain to eliminate that. The problem is the title companies spend 70 cents of every dollar they earn on marketing. And so, like, that's not going to get solved by blockchain. So. I've, I've gotten, I think, a lot more pragmatic and, and focused on what it is. Now, 
there's an enormous opportunity for native digital assets, as we talked about, the way we trade securities or, or trade anything, the way we move money, um, you know, the lending marketplace, in particular, the mortgage marketplace. But but fundamentally underlying that you need a native digital asset for this value proposition to work. That's really interesting. So usually in most conversations here in Washington or in on Wall Street, when one thinks about the tokenization thesis and why you'd want blockchain technology, the analogy to blockchains is that it's a kind of a distributed database. So, you know, picking up on, on, on this thought, usually when one thinks about systems that are very poorly organized and disjointed, so we'll go to either the title insurance world or, or many of the sort of uh, worlds in which states and individual states have ownership over how certain data sets are, are organized, there's at least in theory, this idea that having an immutable decentralized database can make more efficient the handling of that information, which is a different kind of a, of, of a thesis, certainly from what you're doing. You're, you're, you're basically looking at a marketplace, you're breaking it down into component structures and pieces, and you're, you're looking at how you can optimize and in some instances disintermediate those pieces from the standpoint of a marketplace. But, but from the standpoint on a boring old database standpoint, do you see any kinds of use cases or applications there where, if not figure, at least other kinds of folks may be uh, moving into in the future in order to sort of attack uh, legacy costs? Yeah, there, there's huge applications there. One, one of the big ones is around distribution of benefits, whether you're doing it at the federal level, level or the state level. And the idea that historically what we've done is send people a prepaid debit card where someone can intercept it in the mail and, and you know, effectively use it for whatever they want. The level of fraud there is rampant. And so one of the fundamental things that we're doing with blockchain is, uh, you know, and this is, this is a, a, an extended application, but we have something called passporting. And what passporting is, is we go in and we do know your customer, anti-money laundering, and we're relevant accreditation. And that identity sits on the chain. And the idea is that as I move from investment to investment or transaction to transaction, my counterparties don't have to re-identify me or recertify me through that process. And, and so the, the premise of identity is becoming a, a very important focus within blockchain. And if I have identity and I have a mechanism to move stablecoin to that identity, I have a much more efficient mechanism for distribution of benefits where not only can I prevent fraud, I can also have control over how those benefits are spent. And, and this is you know, a great application of USDF, where, where effectively USDF can go into a digital wallet. It looks just like dollars in your banking wallet, and you can go and transact with a merchant. And everyone benefits from that. So the, the, the benefit agency benefits because they know the dollars are going to the people they're trying to help. The consumer benefits because they get the money real time and they can go and transact to wherever it is they need to transact. The merchant benefits because on a blockchain network, you can circumvent interchange. And not only do they not pay the 2 to 3% load, they get their money real time. And you're keeping money in the community because right now when people swipe that debit or credit card, it's going to the issuing bank, which is generally not in their community. Right. So the merchant keeps that money in the community and can reinvest that back in to the benefit of the consumers that, that work with them. So there's there's huge applications. You know, I, I would love to work with a state to put auto title on blockchain because I think auto title on blockchain would be phenomenal and hugely efficient for everyone, you know, from the initial car purchase to the subsequent secondary transaction to the financing side of it. 
there are just huge opportunities there. And, and so you know, I, I think that the challenge blockchain's had is blockchain's been its own worst enemy. It's, it's just a lot of things in the ecosystem, you know, going back to the ICO boom in 2017, 18, right? It, that was a sham. Everyone knew it was a sham. Then you had the stablecoin blowups recently uh, where these algorithmic stablecoins, which never made sense to begin with, blew up. And, and so we keep hurting ourselves by doing things that aren't relevant. And, and you know, the whole pushing of, of crypto assets into retail consumers, right, where they have no real reason to own that crypto asset. It's it just what what blockchain needs is to step back and really focus on these heavy institutional applications and use cases and and, and lose a little bit of the dogma of we're going to disintermediate the banks and create DeFi. I went through that 10 years ago with peer-to-peer finance and we started off in peer-to-peer finance with, you know, Hey, we're going to connect sources and uses of capital. We don't need the banks. Well, pretty quickly we realized, shoot, we need the banks because we need them to finance. We need them to, to buy the loans, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I can't think of a better entity that's going to benefit from blockchain than the banking system. The second benefit of a blockchain ecosystem will be government. And, and that's really where we need to take away all these all this noise and get people to focus on what the real value prop is and how it, it benefits people. Mike, it was wonderful having you on the show, and we're going to have to do this again. Thanks so much for joining The Beat. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. What I think a conversation with Mike Cagney underscores above anything else is just how much the details matter in blockchain. If you really want to disintermediate something, you have to know just what you're disintermediating and the larger system around it. In this instance, it's not just a platform, it's a basic issue of how to connect buyers and sellers or borrowers and lenders and what kind of consideration or money they'll be using and what exactly is it they'll be borrowing and lending in the first place. This means that, surprise, surprise, you have to sweat the details, even when you're trying to disintermediate them. If you don't, you're not only playing with fire, but even worse, you probably won't be able to even light the match in the first place. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.